wonder why people, uh, to get out of the cold today though, I guess, That's, that would be good. I'm going to start just a couple minutes early because I want to try to make sure that I understand why you're here, what it is you want to hear. So my question to you is, uh, what is the issue that you were, are, that motivated you to come here instead of doing something fun outside? Yes, ma'am. Mm. Who don't need any money. Okay. They're, they're all lawyers and whatever. Yeah. And I just kind of would like to, when I leave, I just don't want to leave. When you leave somebody a lot of money, it's a burden. Yes. Yeah. And it really, it, it, it's hard. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm myself. So, so her issue is she, she's just trying to figure out what to do with what she has, and she's received something recently. So, yes, over here. <clears throat> What does the legacy mean? Very good question. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I have nothing in this. <coughs> Pardon me? I have nothing in this. Okay. Nothing? She... <coughs> okay. So hasn't done anything yet, so that's a good good point. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, yeah, and we'll talk we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, anything else? Okay, we're going to hit a lot of other, pardon me? I had everything set up and then my executive passed. And so I okay, common, common situation. She had everything all set up and then her executor passed and so now she's got to refigure that all out. Okay, well, I'm, let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for the weekend that we have to spend here this week and just the beauty and the majesty of your creation. Lord, I just pray that you would... Uh, uh, calm our hearts, calm my heart, allow me to be clear, uh, to be understandable, and to most of all speak things that would be honoring and glorifying to you as we look at what we might do with the things you've entrusted to us. Uh, Lord, we just again thank you for this day and ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So I titled this Being Prepared, and again, I, I titled it this because um, as I mentioned, I, I have had so many people over the last couple of years, particularly the first few months of COVID, um, you know, my phone was ringing, my emails were blasting all the time where people were saying, we need to talk, we need to get ourselves organized. And, and it was, again, the, I think the mass of people really experienced for maybe the first time or recently their, more, their own mortality, the idea that maybe I'm not going to be here. Um, and so what's going to happen? And quite frankly, it is you ladies that are the motivators. Um, us men, we would rather stick our heads in the sand for the most part and ignore this issue. Um, when it, almost always when I'm working with couples, um, I do this for Hume, which includes teaching seminars, um, as well as what, what you'll learn at the end or towards the end, I offer to anybody who's coming to any of the seminars a, a free consultation. Uh, no obligation, no cost, nothing, where I'll meet with you and your husband and, or you, whoever, whoever your, your group is, and um, you can fire questions at me, I'll help you organize, you know, all of that type of stuff, and that's a, that's a ministry from Hume, so that's an extension of, of Hume. But I also have my own pract pr law practice that I've had for 30 years, 
Uh, I'm based in South Orange County, but I operate all over the state. And the common thing that happens when I sit down with couples is uh, the guy is always the one who's the most difficult to get to move forward. And, um, and in some cases, I've actually had two or three where we've had several appointments set with this couple, and for some reason, the guy always comes up with an excuse not to, not to do it. And so the, the problem is, I think, for some reason, God created men with this desire, uh, this, this, this uh, idea that we don't want to face our own mortality. We're, we're you know, the hunter-gatherers, supposedly, and that just is not something we want to deal with. For you, you are motivated more by security, and, and, and this is a security issue, um, and it's not uncommon, I'll, I, I would imagine I have in this group, it's not uncommon to have women come up to me at the end saying, how in the world can I get my husband to move forward? I'm tr- I've been trying to do this for years, and we can't do it, and unfortunately, I don't have any really easy answers other than a lot of times a guy will move forward if they're working with someone that he has developed some trust with. And, and so if he feels comfortable that the man or person across the table from him understands him, then it's a lot easier for him to move forward. So that's, I don't have an easy answer, but that's one answer. So what we're talking about is how do we be prepared? Um, and as I mentioned, a lot of people have dropped the ball over the last two years that started real well about two years ago. So a little background first. I want to talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, Estate planning, which is the general area that we're talking about, has three primary goals. By the way, I'm going to make all of these slides available to you. If you want them, I'll email them to you. So if you don't want to take notes, you don't have to. If you want to fill in gaps, you can do that too. Uh, Also, this entire talk is downloadable on the Hume website. We have all of our speakers um, are on the website, so you can go and listen to anybody who's spoken here. So the three primary goals in estate planning, one is we want to reduce or eliminate estate tax, and we'll talk about that in a second. Second, we want to avoid, uh, or we want our planning to avoid probate, um, which again we'll talk about. And then the third is we want to control the distributions. And the easiest way to think about that is we want to know who it's going to, when it's going to them, and how it's going to them. And we want to be able to be in control of that. So first, let's talk about each one of those. Um, the estate tax. The estate tax is a tax by the federal government where they will tax our estates. Our estates is is what we leave after we're dead. They'll tax our estates and they only start taxing above a certain level. And this level changes and it's unfortunately, it changes all the time. Um, Right now, we're going through a period where it is going up every year because it's indexed for inflation. But then in 2025, uh, for some reason, Congress has decided that this particular law, they don't want to have it the same for a long period of time. So they have 10-year expirations on the estate tax law. Um, This is the third time that it's happened uh, in my career, and we're expiring in 2025. And in 2025, it will revert back to what it would have been all the way back, I think it goes back to... Uh, well, it goes to 3.5 million, which I th- I'm trying to think of the date when it was 3.5 million. But what that means to you is you can accumulate, you and your spouse or whoever your family is, you can accumulate up to 3.5 million 
per person, and then everything above that gets taxed. Now, that's what it would be in 2025. Today, you can accumulate 12, over 12 million per person before there's a dime of estate tax. So there's probably only a dozen or so of you in the room that that's even gonna be a problem for, right? <laughs> um, so we don't really have to worry about this. This is not necessarily gonna be a problem, but it's very, it's very politically motivated. It's very partisan. Um, when the Republicans are in, the, the, this number goes up and there's less tax. When the Democrats come in, like Biden has already said, it's going to expire during his presidency, and he's, going to, he's already talking about either 3.5 or 5 million is going to be the threshold, which still eliminates the tax for probably 95% or more of the people in the, in the nation. So it's unusual that you would probably have this problem, but just so you know, it's every dollar above gets taxed, and it starts at a very high tax bracket. It's 30, uh, 30 what did I have it up there? No. 39.6%, so almost 40 cents on the dollar is taxed for every dollar above this. So you really don't want to do that. But there are techniques, if you're in that position and you have multiple millions of dollars, there's ways to get around this tax. All right, so probate is the second one. First is we want to avoid the estate tax. The second is probate. By the way, let me back up a second. When I say estate tax, we, uh, people confuse it with what's called an inheritance tax. And they're not the same thing. An estate tax is taxed by the federal government, the IRS, and it's taxing what you are leaving in your estate. So it's taxing really you. An inheritance tax is a tax that taxes the people who have already received the inheritance. So it occurs after you've died and, and when your estate passes to your kids, for instance, then your kids might be subject to an inheritance tax. Most states don't have an inheritance tax. The inheritance tax is taxed by each state. It's not the federal government, it's the state. So fortunately in California, we don't have one um, because that would be such an obvious example of double taxation. The same money gets taxed as soon as it changes hands and that's not fair. So we don't have an inheritance tax. All we have to worry about is a state. So probate, probate is a process. It's a process of our estate, what we've left when we die, going through the court system, where the court basically supervises the transition from you to whomever you're leaving the money to. And this was established, by the way, this law dates back to the 1200s, and so it's a very old system of law, and back in England in the 1200s, this was really easy. You'd stand before a, a chancellery, and they would make a decision it would be done in five minutes. But our system has become so complex that uh, normally a normal probate, if we have to go before the court for a full-blown probate, it's easily going to be a year. Under COVID, it's probably more like two years because they don't want to have hearings and we're doing everything on Zoom and, and it just gets really compounded. So it's very lengthy, very time-consuming. It's very expensive. It costs the estate between 4 and 8% of the gross value of everything, and everything becomes public record, meaning your neighbors can go in and request copies of all the documents and find out who you're leaving it to, how much you had, everything. Um, so most people would say, I don't want to do that. I don't want any of that, the time, the money, or the public record. I don't want any of that. What do we, how do we get a probate, though? How do we know things are going to happen? Well, there's, it's triggered by two things. We have to own something which means it has to be in our name. And the way something is owned in our name 
is if our name is on it alone, we have a bank account and it's in our name, or if it's in you and a spouse's name, it's assumed to be either joint tenancy or community property if you're married. And what that really says is the last person living, it's in their name. But that's the same thing. It's ownership in your name. So if you or your spouse have something together, ultimately it's only going to end up in one person's name. Does that make sense? So that's ownership. That could be for houses. It could be for bank accounts. It could be anything. The second requirement is the value of these assets must be over a certain limit. And there, it's determined by what type of an asset it is. There's two types of assets the law says we have. One is called real property, which is real estate. And the other is personal property, which is everything but real estate. So real estate is land and a house or something like that. And in California, the limit of how much the value can be before it triggers a probate is really low. If you can read that up there, it's $55,426. How many of you know of any property in California that's worth under $55,000? It's, it's, unless it's just vacant land in the desert, it's unlikely. So that means that if you own it in your name and you own any real estate in California, it's most likely going to go through a probate unless you do something about it. Does that make sense? Now, personal property, we have higher limits. For personal property, it could be worth up to $166,000. So this would be bank accounts, furnishings, cars, all the other stuff that we have. That's a legal technical term, stuff. Um, so all that stuff, if it's up to $166,000 or under $166,250, yeah, then it will, go, it will fall under the probate limits. But if it's a dollar more, or let's say you do have... Uh, a 10-acre spot of land in, in the middle of the desert that's worth 25000 and you have a bank account that has 160000 in it, if the combination of the two goes over 166, then it pulls everything in. It's like a black hole. Both the property and the personal property come in. So we've got to be careful with those limits. So the requirements, again, for probate, there's two of them. You must own something in your name, and the second is the value has to exceed certain limits. If it's under those limits, then there's ways we can transfer. So how do we change one of those? Yes, ma'am. Can't you avoid probate if you have a living trust? That's next. Oh. The next slide. You're one ahead of me. <laughs> okay. so you have to have ownership and the other? Yes. If you don't own a property? Correct. If, if you don't own anything where your name is not on it, not bank accounts, not, you know, or any of, anything like that, if you don't own anything and your name's not on it, you don't have a problem. But then you don't have anything to give away either because you don't own anything. Um, so you must have both ownership and value. So the way we get rid of probate is we have to get rid of one of those two, ownership or value. We can't really get rid of value. Hold on just a second. Can't get rid of value because that means we're getting rid of all of our stuff and we can't use it anymore. So there are ways legally we can change the ownership and that's what we're going to talk about. Yes? I was just going to add that if you don't, if you leave something in, it has to go through probate, you're leaving a very big responsibility on your children or whoever. So it's a nightmare. It's very, very difficult. It's, uh, and, and almost always... When you leave a, a child, especially if you leave one of your children in charge and you have other children, 
um, I, it becomes so divisive, divisive in the family. Um, it's just, it's really a hard, hard thing to go through. So how do we get rid of them? We have to get rid of ownership or value. So there's, there's, there's actually a, a couple of different methods. There's a lot, of, one of them I would suggest is, is probably the best. The other is one that we can use that sometimes causes other problems. Um, some people have suggested that if we put it in joint tenancy, what joint tenancy means is that the survivor gets things. So someone came up with the brilliant idea, well, if, 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 I, if I have it in joint tenancy with my child or my children, then when I die, it automatically passes to my children and we don't have a probate because it's already got another owner. But the problem is, is joint tenancy carries with it a lot of other problems. For instance, uh, all joint tenants are called jointly and severably liable. This is a, a legal term. What that really means is we're liable for everyone else, for all the other joint tenants' actions. So I have a, a, a case that probably 20 years ago where um, this family had, had that great idea to put their kids on as joint tenants. Um, and one of the kids, the, a 20-year-old, 20, a 20 was out with a friend in their car, and he was drinking. He, he went off the road. The friend that was with him, he killed accidentally in the accident, but, his, but he had a big lawsuit, and there was a $2.5 million judgment against the kid. So when they start looking up assets, trying to find out what does he own, all of a sudden your house shows up because you own it with your child. And so your house now becomes an asset that potentially could be used to satisfy the judgment. So you don't really want to put family on with as, as joint tenants. There are also some potential tax problems um, and some loss of some tax benefits that you could have. So that's not the best solution. The best solution is going back to a technique that actually was developed about 1240 AD, and it's called a living trust. And what a living trust does, I use a bucket as an illustration because it's kind of like a bucket. A trust is, is, if any of you know about corporations or you have a corporation, a family business or something, it's like that where you have a corporation that exists on paper and the corporation can own things, but who's really the owner of that? You are. You own the corporation. Well, the trust is a similar kind of a thing. You own your own trust. And this trust, in this trust, we will transfer the ownership of all of our things. So our money, um, I usually take my keys out and put my, the house, house keys to the house. Uh, anything I own, I want to put into this bucket. Because when I die, I won't technically own it. The bucket, my trust, owns everything I have. And it's only things that I own at my death. Remember ownership and value? Only things owned by me go through probate. So how does this work? Well, what, what happens is we will change title. For instance, I'll use the example of my, my accounts. If I have an investment account, I'm going to change the title on my investment account. Instead of saying David and Judy, that's my wife, David and Judy Harrison, it's going to say David and Judy Harrison as trustees of the Harrison Family Trust. What's a trustee? The trustee is a person who I appoint, since I create my own trust, I appoint them as the manager of all the assets in my trust. They have all the management, use, and enjoyment of these assets. So I'm, I'm telling them, you have the ability to manage them. I'm going to give instructions, and the first instructions are take care of me and my wife with all the assets for the rest of our lives. So 
it, if I'm the trustee of my own trust, I can take money out, I can put money in, I can do anything I would do with it otherwise. Same with my house. I'm going to change the title of my house. And the house is now going to read David and Judy Harrison as trustees of the Harrison Family Trust. So that means if I want to refinance, I can do that. I can take it out. I can put it in. I can do anything I want to with it just like I could before. But as long as it's in the bucket at the time of my death, it's not owned by me. And therefore, I'm not going to be subject to probate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's really, it's not, we try to make it really complicated as lawyers because then we can charge you more for it. Uh, if you don't understand it, then you think, oh, I, I need to have someone help me with that. So that's the easy technique. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how do we then structure things in there because the last thing that I talked about, we talked about estate tax. We're not going to have estate tax most likely. Probate, we can get rid of probate by using a simple living trust. And the last one was control distributions. And this is, again, talking about when we're passing it down to the next generation. How do we do it? Who's, who's going to get it and when? What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to give you an example of, of what I've done. Because what I did with mine, um, with my bucket, is I've watched, having done this, I've probably drafted 3,000, 4,000 trusts during my career. And I've been able to watch what happens when people die and what works and what doesn't work. So when I created and updated my trust most recently, I took all the best ideas I'd been watching from other families and seeing what works and what doesn't work and integrated it into mine. And that's what I'm going to tell you how mine works just as an example of what you can do. So the first thing, we have to set the stage and, and talk about there's a couple of problems that we're running into. One is kids are maturing later in life than they, ha than they have every previous generation. Um, kids are not as responsible as they were previous generations. And part of that, quite frankly, we're to blame. Because what we've done is we've rescued our kids, which means when our kids have slipped and fallen, we haven't allowed them to face consequences. Instead, we've gone and picked them up and brushed them off and let them go on. And particularly, we've done that financially. So I, I hate to say this, but it's true. We have raised probably one of the most financially irresponsible generations that the world's seen that's coming now into a position where they're going to be inheriting probably the greatest amount of individual wealth that the world's ever seen. They think that the transition from uh, the generation that's just getting into the passing away right now to the next generation, they say it's someplace between 10 and $14 trillion in the Western world. That's a huge amount of money. When I'm settling estates, granted I'm in California, which is not like a lot of other places in the world or the US, I would say the average inheritance per child is on a minimum maybe 50,000, but usually more like a couple hundred thousand just because of the value of real estate. Um, and then the second biggest asset is retirement plans. Um, and between the combination of those two, they're getting, they're getting the single greatest lump sum they're ever going to see in their lifetime. Now, with that in mind, what we're seeing, we've had two generations now to watch how people who are beneficiaries, how they deal with their inheritances. And this is what, what I, why I say two generations is because that's when we began to develop personal affluence. Really, after World War II, 
was the first time that the average person in America began to really build up savings and build up value in their houses. Before then, you know, I asked my dad, who just passed away at 98, I said, what did you inherit? And he laughs and he said, you know, my brothers and I split $5,000 because that previous generation just didn't have the ability to accumulate things. So now these generations have, we've watched for two years and we've been able to track what they're doing with the money. And unfortunately what we're seeing is they are proving themselves to be the most financially irresponsible generation. And the graph of what happens with the money is almost identical to what we see with lottery winners. Because it's almost the same thing. Most of the money that we leave, whether it's a house or whatever, it's gonna be converted into cash. Because most of the kids, by the time we die, they're not going to want our house, most likely. What they're going to want is what money they can get out of the house. So what they they're most... The china or the silver either. No, they don't want the china or the silver. Uh, so most of the things that we have will be liquidated and turned into cash, and then they're going to get a check, which is just like a lottery winner. And the, the trend is, and this is scary, but there's ways to get around it, Nine, up to 90% of them now will have little to nothing left in three to five years. And, and that's statistics. We can't argue with that. That's statistics. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to matter how old they are as a beneficiary. Because most likely, if we live our life expectancy, our kids are going to be retirement age by the time they inherit because we're going to be in our late 80s and 90s. So how do we, how do we help? Well, there's ways that we can help. And this is what I've structured in mind. First of all, if you happen to have younger children, uh, we have to make sure that we are fair and equal with all the younger children. So what I've said in my trust is I've said, if I, if I have children that are under the age of 22 or 23, then the, the, when, when I die, everything stays in the family pot. And I'm assuming that this is both my wife and I, we're both gone. It stays in a family pot until all the kids are at the same level, meaning if I help the oldest get through college, I don't want the youngest to have to pay, to pay for college out of their share. That's not fair. I want them to have it paid for like the first one did out of the family pot. So then once the youngest reaches about 22, 23, someplace in there, then we divide it into shares for the number of kids that are going to be beneficiaries. But... For me, what I've, de I've determined is, again, I mentioned that they're not, they're not maturing um, until later in life. I've watched this, and what I believe is an appropriate age for me is 35, because I believe from the time of about college, graduating from college until 35, is a time that they're learning how to take care of themselves. They're learning how to pay their own bills, to, to, to make budgets, to try to figure out how, to, how do we make this all work if, if they have this artificial infusion of money that they can go to anytime they're short, I'm short-circuiting their learning process, and they're not going to go through that. I want them to learn how to be independent before they get this, because if they don't, then it's gonna not, they're going to have to learn that then later in life, and it's going to be more difficult. So for me, I've said, my kids aren't going to get control over their inheritance until they're 35. Doesn't mean they're not going to get some benefit. If there's something that I would have taken care of, I'm instructing my successor, what would be called an executor under a will, but under a trust, it's called a successor trustee. I'm, I'm instructing my successor trustee do whatever I would have done. If I have a child who's coming up on a wedding and I would have helped with, then I want them to help with the wedding. 
Uh, if there's a health need that I would have helped with, I want them to help with the money. So they're going to be able to do everything that I would have done just as if I were there until 35. But then at 35, their share, they're now going to get some control over their share. And, and what I'm going to say is there's two requirements I'm going to ask them to do before they get that. One, I believe one of the problems today is that not only are they not facing consequences for bad financial acts, but they don't know enough about what they're doing financially. They're not being educated about financial issues. So I'm, I have required my kids before they get a dime, they've got to go through one of the financial training programs that's out there. Some good ones that I'm, I've worked with are Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Uh, Crown Ministries Money Life is another good one. Um, and there's three or four more, but those are the two that I recommend most. These are, these are 10 to 12 hour programs. They can buy the CD, CDs for a little over $100 and sit at their computer and watch them. They can go to a class in churches. Churches host these all the time. There's all sorts of places they can do it. They can do it online. But the key is they have to show to my successor trustee that they've completed this program before the successor trustee says, okay, I'm releasing your money to you. Does that make sense? Um, because I just want to help them fill in the gaps of things they may not know. Then the second requirement, I said there are two, is that I want them to pick an advisor or a counselor, someone that they can bounce ideas off of to make sure that what they're doing makes sense. And the way I've structured it sounds a little bit strict, but I'll tell you why in a second, why it works. Um, they have to build their case and present it to this advisor or counselor that they get to pick, by the way. And it's based upon Proverbs, where it talks about there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Uh, that's throughout Scripture. We're going to find that whole concept of counselors are, are, are good. Uh, but they're going to bring their idea to the counselor and say, I want to take $100,000 because I want to buy a house for my family. And the counselor, if this is a wise decision, then they're going to say, well, yeah, it makes sense. Let's do it. And, and then it will be, it'll be okay. Now, the counselor, I'm going to give the rights, though, to completely veto stupid ideas. Um, for instance, I had something recently where I had an advisor call me up, and he says, you won't believe this, but uh, this kid wanted to buy vehicles for all of his best friends <laughs> because he had an account that had about a million dollars in it, and he thought, oh, that won't hurt me. I'll buy cars for everybody. And the counselor fortunately vetoed that and said, that doesn't make sense. So now how do they, how do they pick the counselor? Um, it's not, I'm not picking the counselor because I want them to pick someone they can work with. I want, them to have, uh, the, I want them to have the experience of having to talk to someone and say, yes, I want to work with this person. Uh, but I can give them criteria of what the person must look like. And what I've said is my criteria are, one, I want a Bible-believing Christian that's active in their local church because I want them to share the same worldview that I have. This was my money that I was entrusted with. I want the person that they're going to be counseled by to have the same worldview. Um, and by the way, I have one child who is, uh, I have seven kids, by the way, um, but, but only six are boys. Um, <laughs> the, uh, one of, the, one of the boys actually pushed back on that, and he says, Dad, that's discriminatory. You can't tell me I have to have a Christian to do that. And I said, well, actually, I can. Um, 
And if you don't like that rule, then you don't have to follow it because you don't have to take your inheritance. But if you want it, that's my rule, and I get to set that rule. So he says, oh, no, I, I, not, I would do it, of course, of course. I just was asking. Um, and then the second requirement, the criteria for, the, for these advisors is I want someone who has at least a little bit of experience financially or in accounting. I don't want it to just be their best friend who's going to say, yeah, let's buy everybody cars, um, or their neighbor that they can push over. I want it to be someone who either has, has taken some classes or has done some had some experience. I don't mean it has to be a CPA. or I mean, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, but just someone. I've even said in my trust, I would even approve someone who had gone through Financial Peace University or one of these training programs because I believe that that gives a good background and education. So they have to follow those two requirements and they can pick anybody they want. Now, it sounds restrictive, but I have a safety valve. And the safety valve is I've told my kids that they have the power to hire and fire this person. So if this person is saying no to absolutely everything they're wanting to do, my goal is not to keep them from their inheritance. It's to help them think about it. I'm, what I'm creating is I call them financial speed bumps. I'm slowing them down to make them think about what they're doing so that they're intentional about what they're doing. Because again, this is the single greatest lump sum they're ever going to get in their lifetimes. So, any, so I just want someone who has some background, some, some ability to be able to give them counsel. So they can hire and fire this person, which means that if the person's saying no to everything, they can find someone else they can work with. So one of my other kids, and it's probably the one I'm most worried about financially, because uh, he just would give everything away. His, his response was, well, Dad, then what's to keep me from hiring someone the first day that will say yes to everything? Can't, and I can just take it all out the first day, right? And the answer is yes. If that's what you are going to do, you can manipulate the system because all I'm going to do is set up a structure that if you use it appropriately and use it the way it's set up, it's going to help you. If you don't, it's not. But I'm not here to keep, I'm not going to try to, to manage the inheritance from the grave. I'm, I'm going to give it to you, but I want to give you some, some helps. And that's what this is. So, uh, so that's their safety valve is if they have someone that they can't work with or they're, they're not, they don't want to work with, they can find someone that will say yes to everything and take it all out or take it out in larger increments. Um, so what this... It, they, no, that's, that's their counselor makes those decisions with them. But my, my successor trustee makes sure that they've got it set up. And then once they've got it set up, my successor trustee can back away. So and your successor trustee is not one of your children? That raises a great question. Who's my successor trustee? And, and the answer is that's correct. I do not have my children in that role. And I do the, I've done that intentionally, again, because... I can count on maybe, maybe one hand, maybe two, out of the thousands of families I've worked with, how many times there hasn't been friction between siblings when you appoint one of them as an executor or successor. It always creates friction. Um, and even in the very best of families where they absolutely assure me they are best friends, they would never argue about anything, um, it, it, grief and greed are really poor companions. And, and it, it creates problems no matter what. There's always suspicion 
that the person who's in charge is doing something to help themselves a little bit more than they are, him, are me. So I have purposefully gone outside of my family and uh, who I've looked for is I've looked for people that I trust um, through my relationships. So uh, maybe someone from my church. Um, for me, I've picked people that I've been in some men's groups. One group, we've been together for 29 years. These guys know me. They know my family. So I've picked these guys, one of these guys. Um, but you can, and I can give you more tips individually later. But, but my advice is, if at all possible, go outside the family if you have more than one child. So my successor then will supervise this process of the child setting things up and getting their counselor and all of that. Now, um, here's one reason why I do it this way and why it's so constrictive is by law, if my child can only get to their assets by getting approval from someone else, then they don't have control over their assets. What they have control over is what they take out but they don't have control over if they have to go to someone else and the other person has equal control. So that means that if you don't have control over it, then you have some limited asset protection is what we call it, which means that it will most likely not be subject to divorces, bankruptcies, lawsuits, judgments, liens, all these other things where peop other people can come in and take away the inheritance. So the inheritance gets segregated from any of their other assets and they and their co their, their counselor there are the ones who manage this separate bucket. It's not part of their family bucket with their wife. And this is almost totally, well, let me, it's, it has limited asset protection, meaning that it's unlikely that it will be easily penetrated. So I've set it up that way purposefully. So, the, so that is another, que another question that should come up is, well, how old do our kids need to be before we can let this thing blow up and they can just have the money? And the answer is, it goes back to that limited asset protection. If, if my kids have that protection, why would I want to set an age at which they're going to lose that protection? And if they have the power to pull the plug themselves by just getting the counselor who's going to say, yeah, take it all out, then they have the control. So I'm leaving the control to my kids and as far as I'm concerned, that their little sub, I call it a sub-trust, their little sub-trust or bucket is going to last as long as they want it to last. It can last their lifetime if they want to and then have it go to their kids. Let them decide when they want to take it apart. Yes, because it, 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 she asked, does it bypass community property? Yes, because community property is only those things that are earned or acquired in the course of a marriage. An inheritance is not earned. Uh, gifts are not considered to be community property. They're separate property. So as long as it's segregated, it will always be separate property. And by the way, this is a really, really good technique for girls. Because I can't tell you the number of times I've heard the story from the parents about how, oh yeah, well, you know, we're just afraid that her husband, our daughter's husband, is going to spend the money or he's going to talk her into this great idea because he's always coming up with these great get-rich-quick get schemes. And, she's, and we're afraid of what will happen. Well, this actually, when it's set up this way, the daughter has the ability to say, I don't have access to that. It's, uh, it's already set up all by my parents. Only way I can get access is to go through the counselor. And so it, it works as an insulation, gives the, some opportunity to, to keep that, that daughter secure. Okay, so that... Um, 
that's the way I've set it up for me, and it works really well for, for a lot of families. I've seen a lot of families do this, um, and that's a good way to control those distributions. But there's another thing that you need to be aware of. I'm beginning to find there are four different types of, um, three to four different types of kids that uh, you need to do special planning for. And, and in a group this size, it's very likely that we have several, t several of these kids. The first is we may have an emotionally or physically challenged child, a disabled child. And if they're disabled to a point where they're gonna be dependent upon government programs or government aid, they cannot receive an outright inheritance without it potentially disqualifying them from the government aid. So it has to be set up inside your trust to move into what's called a special needs trust, which is considered to be segregated and not their asset. They're the sole beneficiary, so they still get the benefit, but they don't have ownership. Ownership is what disqualifies them from that benefit. So that's one situation. Another situation is, uh, and I unfortunately I'm seeing 25% or more of the families I meet with have this in their families someplace, uh, substance abuse problems. It is so rampant. You cannot leave outright distributions or money outright to kids who have had a substance abuse problem. Um, it, it is such a, a horrible temptation. Uh, and, and that's the last thing we want to do is ruin them. So there are ways that we can structure it. Uh, there's even ways that I've drafted recently for families where their kids are still in the midst of that where the child, unless they can prove that they have become clean and sober for 24 to 36 consecutive months, they don't get anything. So it provides a, an incentive for them to try to get clean. Um, so there's ways we can structure it, but it's, it's very important that we don't just treat them like the other kids because they're, they're not the other kids anymore. Um, and then another one that's very common is, is what I call the financially irresponsible child. This is an extension of what we talked about because this is the child who has carried this pattern of, of uh, bad behavior financially all the way through their life. I still have clients that I'm meeting with that are in their 80s and 90s that are telling me they have kids that are so financially irresponsible. We're talking about 60 and 70 year olds that are still coming back to the bank of mom and dad every month to help balance their own budget. And the problem is mom and dad have done it now for 50 or 60 years, and so they're conditioned that it, that's the way they live. Um, but those kids, you can bet that if you leave them any money outright, that money is going to be gone. You know, it's going to go faster than the average money because they already have a pattern of, of mismanaging assets. So those types of, fa of families or those kids, you need to have special provisions drafted in to account for those. So when you talk with someone and you meet with a lawyer or meet with whoever's helping you with this, um, these are things that you need to talk about, which are really hard because some of them are very sensitive. You're, there are issues within your family that you don't want anyone to know about necessarily. Uh, but th it's important that the person who's counseling you knows this because we have to draft in special things for those provisions. Okay, we're going to move on to, we just covered that, we covered that, covered that. Okay, some obstacles, a couple quick obstacles. Uh, one of the big ones is taxes. We have so many different types of taxes. Uh, these are, you know, we had a revolution 300 years ago almost for this because they were double taxation. 
These are all taxes that are on taxes upon taxes, taxing money that's already been taxed several times before. Um, but one of the biggest problems we have is the asset that we're acquiring that has the biggest tax and that may be one of the biggest in our estates are our retirement plans. Our IRAs, our 401ks, our 403bs, because you've made a deal with the government, unless it's a Roth, and we're not talking about Roth IRAs, this is all the other traditional IRAs, you made a deal, and the deal was the government said, pay me the tax now or pay me the tax later. And what did you choose to do with these plans? Later, which is a great deal because the money that you didn't get taxed on is compounding for you and earning more money. So that's great. But when you start withdrawing it, which you must do between 59 and a half and 72 now, sometime in that bracket, when you start withdrawing it, a portion of every withdrawal will be taxed because you're now paying that tax. Well, guess what? What if you die and you still have money in your accounts? The kids get to pay the tax. And we had a provision, actually, it was a, uh, a bill that was passed uh, January 10th of 2020. Uh, it was authored by Bernie Sanders, and it was designed to increase the government revenue off of these plans. And so the plan used to be that the kids could take it out over their life expectancy, which if, if they were 50, 40, could be 40 years, and their, their increments would be smaller and it would be less tax when you get smaller increments. The larger that you take the withdrawal, the bigger the tax is going to be because it's considered to be ordinary income, so it's added to whatever money you earn that year. The new bill says that they are forced now to take everything out within 10 years of the date of your death. So compressing that time frame means that the amount that they're getting each distribution is greater and therefore, they're going to be in a higher tax bracket and more is going to be taxed. And in some cases, uh, when I've run scenarios, I, I actually ran one with an average family making $80,000 a year for the household. That's just the household. And they receive a distribution from a $300,000 IRA, then they're going to be put into the 43% tax bracket, federal and state combined. So they're going to lose 43 cents on a dollar of all this money you've saved. You can. If you take it all in the 10th year, you're really going to get taxed. You're going to be in the 55% bracket. So, yeah, so you, 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 it's better to take it in the increments, but yet even that, um, it's, it, it's, really, it's really a nightmare, and, and families don't understand this. There are ways, and I'm just going to plant the seed, and then if it's something you're interested in and you want to talk about, by the way, I'm going to start passing around these sign-up sheets. Um, what I want you to do with these sheets is, uh, if you want the, want the slides... Um, or any information from me, then I want you just to give me all your name, address, where I can send it. I prefer to send them electronically, so your email. Um, or if you'd like to see me, then there's a blank there that says, yes, I'd like to have, have you come by. What I do is I go in geographical areas, like in a couple weeks, I'm going to be in the, in the Sacramento area, and I'll go up there for three or four days and see five to ten families that have signed up that say they want to see me. And we'll just come visit you across your coffee table, answer your questions, whatever you want. And again, there's no charge, no obligation. You don't have to write a check to anybody. It's uh, just a, a benefit. So there is a, a solution to this problem, and there's a way to actually extend that ten years out to 20 years, um, and in the process, uh, it, it, it can almost give them 100% of the value that you left them with. So let's say your, your IRA at your death was, was worth 100000 Using this other structure, 
um, you can actually get back to them about 110% over 20 years through installments, about $110,000, and still have some principal left because they'll be pay, what they'll be getting, receiving is actually the income that the account's earning. Um, and it, it doesn't work that way with the government plan. So there's ways to get around it. Uh, but you have to have probably $150,000 to $200,000 balance in your accounts before it really makes sense. Because what you're doing is you're creating a special trust that will manage it and that allows it to extend another 10 years beyond. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about the, the legacy issue. Um, I'm going to move on. Okay, so first I want to try to answer the question, what is a legacy? And if you look it up, a legacy is something that you've left behind, left to someone else. And um, most of the time when legacy is used, a legacy is talking about the things that we're going to leave behind. Um, and there's, 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 there was a big campaign that was run by charities several years ago called Leave a Legacy. And the big point of that was if you leave money to a charity in your name, then you've left a legacy. And that would be your legacy. Um, my personal feeling is a legacy is something beyond what we leave. <clears throat> For instance, three years ago, my cousin, <clears throat> my cousin <clears throat> who lives in Tennessee, that's where my mother's family is settled, um, sent me a copy of our great-great-great-great-grandfather's will. And she's the family historian, so she uncovered this all. She sent it to me, and it was so amazing because this document he wrote, <clears throat> he was 18 years old, and he wrote it on August 6th, 1861, the day before he went to fight in the Civil War. Just amazing historical document. But the, the big part of the document was the first whole page was his Christian testimony. And he went into so much depth. He talked about how, you know, I have trusted Christ who died on the cross uh, to pay the penalty for my sins and was resurrected on the third day. I mean, he did the whole gospel presentation and talked about the impact that that belief had made on his life. And then on the second page, he talked about, this is who I want to leave my watch to because as an 18-year-old, he didn't have anything. <laughs> but the important part of that is I looked at that document and I, I realized We've had that around now for nine generations of my family. And he's been a, <clears throat> a witness to nine generations of my family over 160 years. What a legacy. That's a legacy. It's where you can make an impact on future generations because of something that you have done or you've, you've, uh, something that's happened to you. Like I mentioned this morning, when, when we're telling these stories over and over again, we're really searching for something of significance. Well, I had someone say, well, she keeps telling this story about me when I was a child. And I said, well, then maybe her significance is you. Maybe she, that's the thing she's most proud of in her life is that you, she had you. So when we talk about a legacy, what I really encourage people to do is think about, you know, how do we impart part of what we were to the next generation? What I did 25 years ago is I wrote a format that I give to all of my clients and I'll make it available to you if you want it, uh, that I call a legacy letter. And it's a letter that you write to your family, to your kids if you have kids, or to whoever is special or important to you, uh, nieces, nephews, who, anyone it could be. Um, and you just 
do th- like in mine, I give my testimony because I know my kids know this. I have one individual letter in a sealed envelope for each of my kids. And they open it up and it has the first whole page is going to be my testimony. And they know that. But what I'm counting on is that this is going to survive their generation and go on beyond. So then I talk about, you talk about them and, and I praise my kids and I talk about the things that I appreciated in them and what, you know, what value I see in them and what, what great qualities they have. And then I talk about memories that we share. And, and it, this is a letter that I have seen probably maybe 15 or 20 families where the kids have been given these after mom and dad have gone. And these are going to last for generations because they're important. They're this thing. They're, something, they're the last words that you've had a chance to give to your kids. So this format, this letter that I put together is a couple pages and it kind of just goes through and gives ideas of how to do this. And, and uh, to me, I found that this is a great way. If you don't have anything else you're doing, this is a great way to leave a legacy. Um, a- another way that you can do it is um, <clears throat> we're believers, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to risk um, possibly offending some of you because you may have a different perspective, but the Bible says very clearly that we are managers of these resources that we have. We don't own these things. God owns everything. If, <clears throat> if God owns everything, then we need to be really careful about what we're doing with it because we're also told that we're going to get, we're going to give an account to the master for the time, treasure, and talent that we've been given. What have we done with the resources he's given? What have we done with the time he's given? What have we done with the abilities that we've been given? We're going to be standing before Christ and explaining, you know, this is what we did. I'm afraid that many of us in this culture are going to be embarrassed because we're going to stand there and realize we took so much of these resources for our own comfort when in reality he had given them to us to be able to further his kingdom and bless those who didn't have. And, and, I, and I, I believe that a great way to leave a legacy is to make sure that what you're doing with what you have uh, is responsible to biblical principles. For instance, um, a biblical inheritance, <clears throat> sorry, a biblical inheritance, it was really clear what a biblical inheritance was in the Old Testament particularly. In the New Testament, the word's only used once of actually a physical inheritance. It's mostly used about our inheritance in Christ. But in the Old Testament, the physical inheritance was a means to provide a living to the next generation. Okay, do you get that? It was a means to providing a living. So it was the family business, the family land where they could farm or ranch, um, but it wasn't just to pass on wealth to the next generation. It was to give them some means to take care of themselves. Well, today in our culture, two things have changed. One is we're living a whole lot longer, so our kids are probably going to be close again to retirement age when we die. But secondly, the inheritance that we are provided, we are to provide biblically, we did that. They're earning their living. We provided education or we've helped them with education. My kids, um, I have, my kids are all adults. We now have grandkids. And I know I'm going to keep pouring money into my kids and my grandkids as long as I'm alive. I'm constantly helping them to be able to do things that I want them to be able to do. So my concept, which is not, it's, you know, not a lot of people have this concept, 
But my concept is I believe biblically that we've fulfilled our biblical inheritance by helping our children learn how to care for themselves and build their own estates. But yet in our culture, the secular culture has come in and told us that what we have to do is leave them a bunch of money on top of that. And I'm just saying, I'm not sure that's biblical. Um, I, I think we really need to think about that. Um, Pardon me? Especially if they well, yeah. aren't believers. I mean, yeah, well, if they're not believers, that's another whole issue. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what I've decided to do is I, I, have, I have a sliding scale I've actually put in my trust, and what it says is that as my, my kids, I believe that most kids start to be financially independent about 40 to 45. That's when they stop hand-to-mouth, and now they're starting to accumulate something. And so from 40 or 45 or so up until 65, supposed retirement age, um, the share that I was going to leave the kids is in decreasing by 1%, and the amount that's going to, my, to God's kingdom is increasing by 1%. So it's going like this. As my kids' needs lessen, the amount that's going to God's work is increasing. Um, with the goal in mind that I would love to see 80% of my estate go to God's kingdom and 20% to my kids because my kids don't need it anymore. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that. If the kids have not had the ability due to illness or whatever's happened in their life and they've not genuinely not had the ability to make a living, I'm not talking about lazy kids, I'm talking about ones who have hard, hard, worked hard, who have been uh, missionaries or, or some other area where they couldn't earn a lot, I'm not going to penalize that child um, and I'm not trying to penalize any child. I'm trying to do what I believe is the responsible thing biblically. Um, I believe I've given my kids their inheritance and, I, and God's given me something beyond that as a surplus and I want to do something that's going to count for eternity. And so that's a philosophy. Um, and some people will go, they'll buy into it partially or, or whatever, but that's personally what I believe the Bible teaches. And, and, and I, I, someone said, well, aren't you afraid of offending your children? Well, yeah, I don't want to hurt my kids, but my kids, by the way, know this. I'm not leaving any surprises. Um, I want them to know what's going on. But even if they didn't know, I'm less afraid of, of offending my kids than I am of offending my Lord for mismanaging what he gave me to use. He's the one I'm going to spend eternity with and, and be praising, and I, I want to be able to praise him and say, I've done everything I should have done. One last thing I want to talk about. There's some documents that are part of a trust package that everyone needs to have. You even need to have these even if you don't have a trust, you don't have any money, and these are called powers of attorney. Two different types of powers of attorney. One is over medical, one is over everything else. Let's talk about the everything else first. Everything else is the one that says, this is who I'm appointing if I become incapacitated, either temporarily because of an accident or long-term because of an illness, this is who I want to manage my affairs, to pay my bills, to take care of all the things for me. In addition, this is the person who's going to represent me. So if there's, if there's a discrepancy with the insurance company or the IRS or with Social Security, this is the person who has the authority to get on the phone and talk to them on my behalf. That's the power of attorney. You want to have at least two people, one primary and a backup. If you're married, most of the time it's your spouse as the primary, and then you have a backup. Um, and in these roles, I would say it's okay to name kids because they're not, you're not talking about them managing money over someone else's money. 
So they're just helping make decisions while you're alive but incapacitated. Over here, the healthcare directive, which is the other document, it names the people who you want to make medical decisions for you if you can't make them for yourself. So you're in a car accident again or ill or whatever. Who's going to be able to talk to the doctors about what you want to do? Secondly, it allows you to pre-elect what type of life-sustaining measures you want or don't want. Do you want to be kept alive indefinitely or do you want to die naturally if that's your time? You get to make the choice. And the third is what's called the HIPAA release or the privacy releases. And the privacy release it comes from a, a 1996 act called Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which had buried in it privacy provisions that say without your written permission, information about you medically cannot be released to anyone. It has to be the person named on a sheet. And here's how this works. I'll give you a real quick example. Um, we have six boys and one girl. So the daughter is in the middle. She's the princess taken care of by her older brothers and she can pick on her younger brothers. So she's perfect spot. She was 19. She was dating a guy. Uh, we affectionately now call him the jerk um, because he was driving on a double date and he was drinking. Yeah. So they ended up having a, a, an accident where the car rolled over and all the kids get taken to the hospital. We go to the hospital and, of course, the first thing they want is our insurance paperwork. Who's going to pay for all of the injuries? So we give them the insurance paperwork, and the clerk looks at all of it, and she says, okay, so Lindsay turned 18 or 19 when she was on April 5th, right? And all of a sudden, I panicked. You know, here I do this for a living, and I still thought of her as my baby. She wasn't. She was a legal adult. And so the next thing she says is, do you have her health care directive so we can talk to you. I had not done that. Well, none of the four families had. So all four of us sat in the lobby the whole night, just waiting, not knowing. Now, fortunately, all the kids were okay. But boy, that was a lesson of how important these documents are. So what I did from that moment on, I still had three younger boys, Every 18th birthday, they'd blow out the candles and I'd stick a healthcare directive <laughs> under their nose and I'd say, sign this. This is part of being a legal adult uh, because we needed to have that. So that is so important, not only for all of you, but also now recognize that if you have kids that are legal adults, um, they need to have that. There's no exceptions. It does, just because you're married to someone doesn't mean that your spouse can come in and claim to be married and they're going to give them information. The rule is, if your name does not, pardon me? I thought they had uh, up to the age of 25 now, that they're We're not talking about insurance. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, they, they, are, they are up to 26, actually. And, and yes, they, they can be included on insurance. This is talking about the hospital being able to talk to you about their condition. And, and so the reason why spouses are not included is because the lawyer from the hospital explained it. He said, we're not putting our staff in the position of trying to figure out what your relationship is, whether you're married or estranged or divorced or just happened to share the same last name. They said, the rule, the law says, unless your name appears on a list that you've put together, we're not able to talk to them. That's the rule. So that means that all of us need to have them. It's really, really important to do that. And those are standalone documents. They don't have to come with a will or a trust. You can do them independently. Uh, but you do need to have them. 
Um, any final questions? If you have questions, I'm going to be up here too that I can talk to you about. And again, if you want to talk to so about something more personal, um, then just sign up and I'll be glad to either we'll talk on the phone or we'll talk in person. Yes, ma'am. The, the, the last form, yeah, it's called Advance, A-D-V-A-N-C, no D, Advance Health Care Directive. You can download it off the uh, California Medical Association website. I think they charge you $45 for it. But that's, you know, if, if you get it done in a law office, it's probably going to cost you 100 and that includes the notarization and all that. Yeah, yeah. you, you got to be careful, though, that they, I find that a lot of them that people have downloaded do not have the privacy provisions in them. And that's the sole reason you're really doing it is to make sure that the privacy. So make sure if you download one that it actually says the, these people are entitled to be talked to and the information shared with them. Yes. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Okay, doctor's offices can give them to you. Um, just recognize you, you can get one at the hospital too, and you can get one at a doctor's office, but they're not the same. They're very small, very, very brief. They don't cover as much because their, their purpose is uh, in, those, in both, both settings, the doctor's office and the hospital, um, it's really they're, they're absolving themselves of their legal liability to do that. So they're not concerned about a lot of the other stuff. Most of the other ones have more inclusive information that you can put in there. Okay, I'm done. I don't want to go too far over. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you.